This is the DevSecOps Days Podcast. DevSecOps Days Podcast is supported by OWASP, dedicated to enabling organizations to conceive, develop, acquire, operate, and maintain applications that can be trusted. And with support from the Sonatype Nexus platform, allowing companies to automatically control open source risk. This is Mark Miller, Editor-in-Chief and host of the DevSecOps Days podcast series. Thank you for your continuing support. Please subscribe to the broadcast on DevSecOpsDays.com in order to receive notice of newly published broadcasts and to leave comments on the broadcasts. On today's show, I'm talking with Cheetan Kaneki, CTO of Shift Left. Cheetan wrote the strategic asymmetry chapter in the newly released Epic Failures in DevSecOps book. Welcome, Cheetan. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. Yes, I, I think I want to start here with what does strategic asymmetry mean? Where did you get that title for your chapter? For the past few months, uh, I have been examining this relationship before we speak of symmetry or asymmetry. There is a relationship between an attacker and a defender. Attackers have intent and so do defenders. So it is important to understand how these two connect both from a threat induced upon a system and the defender taking a course of action to protect from that threat by fixing potential vulnerabilities or weaknesses that might exist in their system. If you examine warfare or cyber warfare today, a single individual is very capable of waging cyber war at a level we previously attributed only to intelligent agencies or crime syndicates. What he has at his dispense is the internet. That's where the asymmetry comes into play. There is this strategic asymmetric conflict in this relationship. And what I wanted to do is tease out that detail to describe how the playing field exists between these entities and how do we level that playing field by what you're discussing. When you were writing the chapter, Chetan, what was your audience? You pictured somebody you were writing this for. Who was that? The audience is not specifically a certain persona. Uh, what I was trying to do is deconstruct all the potential players, both from a defender perspective and the attacker perspective. So when we examine an organization taking the role of defending the services that they build, you have different personas that come to play, like perhaps an engineering manager or an engineering leader and security leader as well, playing the role of a CISO. And then you have the operations folks, which we essentially call as DevOps today, responsible for bringing a degree of automation to the software that is created by engineers. And then threat analysts were responsible for examining and modeling the behavior of an adversarial entity interacting with their system. So given that we have these different personas who are working in concert with each other in order to protect software, I was attempting to address the symmetry and the asymmetry, taking all these personas into consideration, given that they work together to solve the problem. I want to tear that statement apart a little bit with something that you said here. You said that DevOps is operations. Yes. 
That's a, that's an interesting perspective because the industry itself sees DevOps as developers, security, and operations working together as a single team. Very fair statement. There's often a confusion in the term DevOps. You know, I, I might not do justice to it, but I might express my opinion. DevOps is a way of doing things more effectively than it used to be done. I correlated the term DevOps with operations is because operations used to be a team in the past. Today, they are reinventing themselves to adhere to this new motion called as DevOps or the way of doing things. What they have at their arsenal are a set of tools, tools that enable them to write code to provision infrastructure. It so happened that they had to reinvent themselves at this appropriate time, because in the past they were dealing with physical appliances that they were provisioning, installing, orchestrating, and thereafter managing software that was deployed on these physical appliances. With the advent of software-defined infrastructure, there was this notion of creating language or what they call as infrastructure as code that enabled operations to create software or write code in order to deploy or create virtual instances, which are representation of physical instances in the past. Now with the advent of both software-defined infrastructure and, and the language to create infrastructure, it was necessary for the operations folks to reinvent themselves, to adhere to this practice. So DevOps enabled these individuals to essentially more effectively manage the infrastructure and thereafter have visibility on what they manage. So this is one of the reasons why I, I kind of correlate both operations and DevOps. But to your point, DevOps crosses that chasm. It is not restrictive and specific to a persona. It permeates across developers, operations, um, working in tandem to effectively both manage, deploy, and sustain the infrastructure. As we're moving forward, Achit, and one of the things that I'm a proponent of and I've, I've been pushing for the last couple of years is the idea of DevSecOps making security an integral part of what you just described. What's your position on that? I've always been an uh, advocate of what you're professing because I've been following you know, your community effort for quite some time. And I'm a big fan of what you're doing. And there is a primary reason to this. Developers have moved forward with this notion of uh, how to deploy and develop software. Meaning today, developers are creating software even more faster because of the advent of software-defined infrastructure and also the, this momentous open source movement where it is rather easier to write software because you can incorporate open source libraries that can serve your purposes in order to build effective software. Now, as engineers write software faster, DevOps has attenuated its, itself as a motion to enable deploying the software even more faster. Now with this happening, security often gets left behind because security has not yet caught up to that speed, which is why your term that was coined, which is DevSecOps um, with the community that you're working with is critically important here. 
because it speaks of enabling security to attenuate itself to the velocity of the engineers and the DevOps teams. Now, in order to do that, it is important for security teams to effectively understand the vulnerabilities or inherent vulnerabilities in the software, create effective policies so that the system guarantees that it can still operate despite of attacks applied on it, and thereafter observing for attacks directed against the system interface when deployed in production. Now, if an attack is applied, active defenses should be also placed in appropriate places in order to protect the entire system uh, from caving. So note that there is a very strong relationship between vulnerabilities, policies, attacks, and defenses. It is important at this junction to take all of these different systems, correlate them, and actively observe and act thereafter. This means we, as security teams, have to operate at that velocity. So DevSecOps is a bunch of experts in the community expressing their opinions and their learnings from sustaining infrastructure and observing how security can change its posture to attenuate to this new world of DevOps. I'm looking forward to where DevSecOps will take us, but the moment has picked up and we have everyone, both from engineering organizations to operations and DevOps, observing and listening and attenuating at the same time. As you were talking through there, one of the things that came to mind is that asymmetry implies that there is a difference in time between two different entities. And what we are trying to do with DevSecOps is place automation at the center of this process so that it reduces the lag time between the defenders and the attackers. Is that the way you see it? Absolutely. I mean, this was one of the reasons why the title of the chapter is Leveling Playing Field in order to effectively understand how you apply instruments to measure both a threat and a vulnerability and correlate them effectively. To your point, this lag exists because we are taking various instruments and measuring the same thing. Often when things like this happen, I mean, just to get into detail, these instruments, you have a set of instruments that you deploy on the left-hand side of your software development stack. These instruments measure vulnerabilities. Now, when the application is deployed in production, that same set of instruments are measuring for threats. So how do you correlate both these entities together to solve for that purpose? So it is important to connect vulnerabilities and threats together and use the same instrument to measure both of these so that you have the context to operate with. I want to read a very short paragraph that you wrote that I think is at the core of what we're talking about. It actually is the stats on what we're trying to deal with. It says, the outcome has led to 159,000 cyber instances with 7 billion records exposed and 5 billion financial impacts. On a post-mortem study, it was concluded that 93% of the breaches 
could have been prevented. 93%. That's astounding to me. Absolutely. You know, this statistic is a critical statistic which draws the connect between the fact that we have been practicing security. You know, Fortune 500 companies have deployed a plethora of instruments to measure both for vulnerabilities and threats. But still, we have 159,000 cyber incidents and 7 billion records exposed. So why is this uh, particular statistic out that uh, is conflictive of the fact despite of effective practices? It is because all these systems are generating alerts. And as these systems generate alerts, you need another instrument to correlate all these alerts, bear context, and then give you a narrative to act on. You know, that's an interesting perspective. That's what happened with Target, right? They had 90,000 notifications they were trying to deal with. And this thing that was really the problem, it was just buried in the report. This is because of alert fatigue, because every system says they are effectively modeling techniques to correlate these events and, and bring forth the signal to the individual to act on. And some say that they have automaton deployed so that you know the signal is effectively extracted and then you have an automated unit that acts on. But yet we are speaking of statistic here, or what I mean by statistically significant systems. Because all these systems require appropriate amount of data to effectively act. If we take on this acronym, which is observe, orient, decide, and act, it's all about having data that powers that model to take decision. Unfortunately, sometimes models operate not with either not with enough data, or if your software is constantly changing, because engineers literally, you know, in companies like Netflix and Facebook and Google are deploying software multiple times a day. Now, as the software fabric fundamentally changes, so does the attack vectors. Now, if all of this is changing, it's impossible for a model to stabilize to extract signal, which is why, despite of deploying all these solutions, yet we see compromises, attacks leading to data exfiltration. When I was talking to Gary McGraw a while back, one of the things that Gary said to me is, the problem we're dealing with with the complexity is that you can take two things that are safe with no vulnerabilities on their own, but when you put them together within the system, they become vulnerable. Excellent point. If we speak of those two things, we can, we can actually have this narrative squarely focus on the software fabric itself. In the past, when we were writing software, it was our engineers in our organization that had total cost of ownership of that software. But now that has fundamentally changed engineers are using open source software and deploying the entire application on an open source framework, which means a large part of the software supply chain is no longer owned by the engineer. You squarely focused on your specific question on the part that when you bring two things together, then a vulnerability comes to emergence because on one part, you have something that you don't own, which is open source. On the other part, you might have an application that is using the open source in an unfair or unsafe way. 
when this happens, a vulnerability manifests. This is a case in point with what happened with the SF Muni incident as well, hmm. where there was a degree of argument between the maintainers of the Apache library and the application developers who implemented the software for scheduling and uh, providing information on the SF Muni transport system. And the conflict was the engineers blamed that the library enabled the vulnerability, but the author, uh, one of the co-authors of Apache library, Benedict, had a very fair point. He said, it, it is not the open source library that should be blamed. It is how you use the library that should be taken into account. Because as we write web applications, we accept inputs, the inputs using which our consumers interact with, and so does an adversarial entity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When an adversarial entity is interacting with the system, they are using these inputs as front doors to inject potential vulnerabilities. That is what they call as the reconnaissance stage, where they're trying to figure out whether your system is vulnerable or not. As application stewards, if we don't effectively validate that input, then that input might permeate into your application and potentially trigger a certain condition that exists as these two things, which is your application and the open source interacts. And when that happens, it becomes a vulnerability. So it is important for us to ensure that, you know, we understand our soft software supply chain today, not by merely examining the threat landscape, because the threat landscape only publishes known vulnerabilities. We have to examine the conditions that exist behind the vulnerability, which is your untrusted input, your data flow, because as an input is triggered upon a particular flow, a session is established, and then an interaction manifests where you have this workflow communicating with the database and other microservice, looking up key value pairs in memory. So all these business workflows have certain conditions behind it. And if the conditions are weak, then it manifests and becomes a vulnerability. In your chapter, one of the things that you do when you're analyzing the final outcome of this epic failure that you're describing is you use the medieval castle analogy to talk about defense in depth. Talk me through that a little bit. Uh, we as uh, security stewards have been inspired by the medieval approach of defense in depth, meaning create several layers, because if the defense break down in one layer, then there's always a subsequent layer in the fabric that can provide protection. Now, this is how security is practiced today, because uh, if we measure how we apply instruments to assess vulnerabilities and threats, we deploy different softwares in the entire software supply chain or the software development lifecycle. Now, all these systems are constantly measuring the same fabric, which is your application, at different stages. Because of the stage on the far left is when you implement or write code that becomes your applications. And the, somewhere in the middle, you deploy that application as it's bundled and packaged into your test and harness environments to test both for performance efficacy and security efficacy. And then based on the necessary information or signal that you derive, you 
take affirmative decision of deploying that software in production. And thereafter in production, you apply a web application firewall, IDS, IPS, or what they call as intrusion detection and prevention systems, and runtime application security protection. Now, all of these measuring instruments are deployed, and all of these generate their own signals. It is upon or the onus of a human to again aggregate all of these signals into another instrument that is procured called a SIM, which attempts to correlate all that information and then extract a meta signal. And that meta signal is what an individual or human has to use to drive decision. Decision like there is an active threat, now we need to block it and then file a bug so that the engineers can immediately act on it, patch it, and then redeploy it. Note that despite of the fact that we have applied defense in depth, yet owing to this asymmetric relationship, attackers permeate these layers and figure out creative ways to get past it and still compromise systems and exfiltrate data. Every week we wake up to new headlines. So the broader question to ask is why is this happening, uh, which is going back to the previous point that you raised. It is happening because we effectively, as subscribed to all of these tools, have created an additional problem, which is alert fatigue, owing to which majority of these personas begin to ignore these signals because they're way, way too many signals, either manifesting as false positives, or in certain cases, they're true positives, but yet, there are way too many for an individual to act on. Well, shouldn't automation of the process help with this alert fatigue? It seems as if we could build automation that can analyze the degree of risk that's involved in the vulnerability found. And so that the real things that people need to deal with should flow to the top and not be buried in a report with 90,000 other things. Great question. For the most part, the different levels of automation. If you speak of the first level of automation, it's information dissemination, because you have all these systems generating information and signals. But note that each of these systems have different policies. In order for that signal to be very precise, the system should be augmented with the human intelligence to tune those systems so that appropriate signals are lifted up. The second part is just sustenance over a period of time because active threats are constantly evolving. As attackers figure out newer ways to attack, the policies in all of these systems which are driving automation should be appropriately adjusted. If they are, then the system becomes effective in observing and acting on newer threats. But unfortunately, there is a lag. There is a lag in consistency because sometimes, you know, it is hard for all of these plethora of instruments uh, to stay updated. And when they begin to fall behind, that's where it becomes ineffective. What we need to do is figure out newer ways of ensuring that all these systems stay updated. And the other aspect is the system in itself should come alive. I mean, there are various papers that I've been reading and paying attention to where uh, today we have scheduling systems like Kubernetes and Mesos, where we provision virtual infrastructure in a matter of minutes, and we can reprovision in a matter of minutes as well. 
So if the shape of the infrastructure can keep changing, then if an attacker attacks or compromises the system, we can constantly reset and prevent the attacker from proliferating through the infrastructure. And this is a technique called as moving target defense. And I touched on it briefly at the end of the chapter. But to your point, Mark, automation is available, but it is upon the onus of a human to ensure they're using the automation in an appropriate way. In theory, it's exciting to hear what you're talking about, but what about exponential complexity? I mean, where do you get started even with the complexity of applications today? First of all, it is important to understand the composition of your application. Because, you know, over time, as engineers build application, they are adding newer libraries to serve their needs, open source libraries that provide functions, and they're deploying their software on newer fabrics. Now, as that evolution happens, we have to constantly measure and understand the composition. That's the first part. And then thereafter, understand the drift, whether, you know, as this evolution happens, is this evolution heading in a positive or a negative drift? The second aspect comes to play when you emphasize previously on as components begin to interact with each other, what is the inherent risk? Meaning, as you observe that an application engineer had written a piece of software that uses an open source library, is he using it in a safe or unsafe way? That's the second double click. That information should be provided back to the engineer as early as possible in the software supply chain so that he can observe with the necessary guidance and directive and address those issues before the software is deployed in production. If the engineer chooses not to pay attention to this because of course, engineers want to build new features and that's their core value. These issues get carried on and they get deployed in production. So a system that is measuring for these issues should mark that area of the application as risky, apply an appropriate policy and continue to observe in production if any imminent threat is applied on that path. So note what I mentioned here is a system which is only one single instrument that is effectively correlating an inherent weakness or a vulnerability to the protection measure, which of course is not happening today when you procure a plethora of instruments, simply because each of these instruments are measuring different parts of the same software. If I can kind of clarify for myself, one of the things that was implied here is that the analysis should be being done during the development phase to see what kind of risks you are implementing within the system. Exactly. If you go back to even the, the principles of uh, DevSecOps, you know, um, you've created an amazing community, by the way. And as I pass through some of the learnings of these leaders who are maintaining these complex system, they are professing for the same fact which is move security to the left. But as we all know, most of the code that we produce in some way, shape or form always contains weaknesses and vulnerabilities. So it is imperative and important that an engineer has proof of exploit so that they can prioritize their vulnerabilities and pay attention to what matters most. 
So it is important to create that continuous feedback loop, meaning what we learn in production by examining threats, we take as information and send it back to the left with evidence. So as the engineer identifies a vulnerability, with that, there is guidance and directive and proof of exploit so that he applies the appropriate patch, uses that guidance and the proof of exploit to test it in the harness environment and then deploys it in production. One of the things that DJ Schleen talked about last year at RSA conference for DevSecOps days was something that has been resonating around for a year or two now in the idea that when we first started doing this, we would all say, if you find a vulnerability, stop right there, fix the vulnerability before you move forward. DJ found that in his larger environments, what you need to do is you don't necessarily fix it. You flag it so that the process doesn't stop and you fix it during the process, but you don't stop the entire production line. And I think I just heard that echo in something that you said. Absolutely. Can't agree more with that statement. DJ has been practicing DevSecOps at uh, CVS Health and Aetna uh, in the most efficient way. And I think uh, he he's doing a great job in imparting some of his learnings. Precisely to your point, it is important to flag because engineers are primarily focused on time to market. Right, right. All, all of us as engineers want to ensure that our customers get the best experience. Security is often not paid as much attention to. And when this happens, we create more vulnerabilities as we build more complex software. And to your point and DJ's point, if we flag risk, then we carry that software to production, we observe for threat, we potentially block that threat from manifesting, but we carry that evidence back into development. So the engineer now comes to terms with the fact that this particular path needs that necessary attention from a security perspective. From your perspective then, what is the developer or the engineer's responsibility when it comes to security? It is a joint responsibility in my opinion, uh, but from specifically from a developer's perspective, they would have to understand what is the software flow from a security perspective and what are the inherent risks associated with what they build from a security perspective. You know, that that's all good in theory, but yeah. isn't a developer and an engineer paid to get software out the door and now you're just laying something else on top of him? It's always about accountability, right? Meaning if there is a threat and if there is a threat manifests to data loss or data breach, eventually a group of people have to get into the room and share that responsibility of how to protect the system thereafter. To your point, precisely today, engineers are incentivized to build more effective software from time to market and customer perspective. Where it is lacking, is that security is not baked into that incentive. Often engineers get their bonuses or quarterly or, or, or biannually bonuses simply based on their efficiency of software deliverance. And security is not a vector there. What I'm looking forward to seeing is organizations changing that 
where we have you know, active exercises within the organizations like capture the flag, where other engineers find vulnerabilities within software that the company produces. And thereafter that engineer gets incentivized via bug bounty programs and everything else that you can think of. So this is where the aspect of human incentives come into play because you know everyone is driven and motivated by incentives. That's fascinating. So if we take security and say it's not baked into the incentive program, then there really isn't any reason for the developer to put this onus on himself to fix. However, if we do the math and we look at what does it take to fix a vulnerability once it's in production, then we can actually get some kind of relationship between an incentive program and what it costs not to fix that and build that into the program. Precisely. Because always when we speak of incentives, we are also speaking of accountability. They are correlated to each other. So security then becomes specific accountability measures as well. Because if it's baked into incentive, I am motivated to ensure the software I produce is always secure. And if it is insecure, it directly impacts my incentive. That's where accountability comes mm -hmm. from. That's an interesting part because we're all struggling to find what is the direct relationships in an ROI sense, in a dollar value sense, between fixing something at the point of origin and fixing it later downstream. Can't agree more with you, can't agree more. And I feel that that fundamental behavioral change will happen as we have community leaders speaking about this, uh, because eventually, you know, if we have the lighthouse effect where leaders are speaking about their experience through a particular threat incident, it makes it relatively easier for others to understand and comprehend and adjust their behavior. So this is why I'm, I'm squarely looking forward to the DevSecOps motion and movement. This is the DevSecOps Days podcast. DevSecOps Days podcast is supported by OWASP, dedicated to enabling organizations to conceive, develop, acquire, operate, and maintain applications that can be trusted and with support from the Sonatype Nexus platform, allowing companies to automatically control open source risks.